1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 10. And let us stand together for the reading of God's Word. Paul continues and writes, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such a, in such a case. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this passage would be illuminated to us this morning, that we would see what your word has to teach us, and we would apply it to our lives, God, wherever necessary, that you would reveal that to our hearts, God. And I thank you, Lord, that you would use me to preach this this morning, even though I am unworthy to do so. And I thank you, Lord, that we can gather here as an oasis church and submit ourselves to the Word of God and be a church that is seeking to be faithful in all areas. And so I pray that you would bless our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So Paul is now continuing this discussion on marriage. You know, as, as Pastor Keith had talked about a few weeks ago, right, we took a couple weeks off of 1 Corinthians. We had our Palm Sunday. We had Easter last week. But a few weeks before that, we were in 1 Corinthians, the first nine verses. And one of the things that Pastor Keith had talked about was that we need to remember the context here of the Corinthian churches, that these are believers or at least a group of professing believers, but the believers within this congregation wanted to know, how do we live this godly life out? See, one of the things that we have to remember is we are so privileged to have the Word of God the way, the way that we do. This, this is very new to history, by the way. Even with the printing press 500 years ago or so, it still was very difficult to get the Word of God just out to everybody, and it was certainly difficult at that time to get it out in your own language. So the Corinthian church did not have access to even the Old Testament the way that we do. They had the Old Testament scriptures, which Paul builds and builds on and, and uses. And uh, in my opinion, at this point, there are gospels that are, have been written and are being you know, passed around at this point and, and uh, taught from. 
but they still did not have the same kind of access that we do today, where we can just wake up in the morning, most of us, and we can flip open our Bible, and, and we can look at, well, 1 Corinthians 7, it's right there. These are believers that needed to ask. This is why they wrote to Paul, asking, okay, so you know, what about marriage? What do we do when someone in the church is sinning? Or someone has to report to Paul, hey, Paul, there's a man who's sleeping with his stepmother in the church and they're not doing anything about it. Hey, Paul, they're, they're really abusing communion there in the Lord's Supper. I don't think they know what it's about. So these are, these are, there are believers here who are genuinely seeking to understand how do we live this Christian life and how do we live it in something like marriage and in the covenant of marriage. But I will say that this won't be a topical sermon on marriage. I'm going to stick to the text that we have, and I'm going to exegete that for us, and then I'll give us some implications, but it probably will not answer every question you have about the biblical understanding of marriage and divorce. But it should give a lot more clarity to at least these uh, you know, seven verses here. At the beginning, Paul starts with, but to the married, right? So he had just talked about this idea of singleness within the church and this gift of celibacy. And, but now he's moving on to the married. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul is discussing issues of divorce and remarriage within Christian marriages within Corinth. He's going to talk about marriages that involve unbelievers in a minute, but he's first addressing those who are believers in the church. If you are married as Christians, Paul is reminding his readers that God hates divorce and that allowance for divorce is only on biblical grounds. And so Paul, you know, interestingly enough, as you look at the historical context within Rome, the, the dealing with the issue of divorce is not too dissimilar than today, where divorce was relatively commonplace. In fact, the way that even marriage was looked at then was not too dissimilar than now as well. They had civil marriage, but they also had common law. Where, you know, you'd, we know what common law marriage is. If you live with somebody for a certain number of years, right, the, the, you can, the state sees you as it's a common law marriage. Well, within Rome, that was only a one-year thing. And I think the reason why it was a one-year thing is because within one year, there's a certain thing that happens to married couples, and that is babies, right? <laughs> so within one year, if you're kind of living this lifestyle together, it means you're having intercourse and you're probably going to be producing babies. So, common law marriage. It's not seven years like it... Well, I think it was seven years in California. I don't know what it is in Illinois. They don't have it anymore? Wow, okay. Well. The point, though, is that this idea of marriage and even divorce was not so radically dissimilar than what we would see today. In fact, divorce rates... What happened, I mean, they were high. Not as high as today, but they were there. And, and, and it would happen for a number of reasons. And in Rome, something that um, 
something that the, the Jews didn't practice, but within Rome, within the Gentile world, women were allowed to divorce their husbands. So Paul is naturally addressing both then. But he's speaking in the context of Christian marriages influenced by the culture. So the married, I give this instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Then he ends it with, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. There are very few biblical allowances for divorce. Jesus even says in Matthew 5, 31, it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a legal document. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for immorality, or the word there is pornea, fornication, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to bring up this text here is because, you know, Pastor Keith brought this up a few weeks ago as well, and, and, and I want to reiterate this, that what can tend to happen with passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking about divorce and remarriage, is it can be what is called proof text. Proof texting uh, is when you try to take a text from Scripture to prove your view. But the problem with proof texting many times is that it is usually taking things out of context. So it's not looking at 1 Corinthians 7 in the right context. It's not looking at Matthew 5 or Matthew 19 within the right context either. And so what has happened is people have looked at 1 Corinthians 7, and then they look at Matthew 5, and they take those red letters of Jesus and they say, well, what Jesus is saying is that there is no grounds for divorce unless a spouse commits adultery. And then it's kind of free game. Then it's fine. But we have to remember that the red letters of Jesus are no more important than the black letters in the rest of your Bible because they are all the Word of God. So when you look at Deuteronomy 28 or you look at Exodus 21, both speaking about the context and covenant of marriage, or you look at 1 Corinthians 7 or Matthew 5, it is all equally the Word of God. There are some Christians who, they're called red-letter Christians, they try to elevate the words of Jesus as if they're more important than the rest of the letters around it, except what doesn't make any logical sense is the fact that Jesus didn't write any of the Gospels, it was the people who wrote the other black letters that also wrote the ones that are attributed to Jesus. So none are more important than the other as being more God-breathed. They are all the Word of God. And therefore, they cannot contradict each other. You cannot have Paul contradicting Jesus, and you cannot have Jesus contradicting his words in the law. Especially when just a few verses prior to what Jesus says in Matthew 5.30, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, and that the law will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. See, Jesus is not rebuking the law. Jesus is confronting how the religious people of Israel have taken what his law meant, which was to protect husbands from women that would be lying about their virginity into marriage, and then to protect women from false accusations from their husbands. That's what the law says. That's what it shows with this whole idea of the certificate of divorce. It was meant for protecting 
deception going into marriage. And it was meant for protecting the abuse of women. Because in this day and age, what you could have, what you could have is men divorcing women for just about anything. And therefore, where does that leave the woman? Well, she can't go get remarried because, one, she's not a virgin, and two, depending on the tradition that you follow, it would also make you an adulterer. So this is what Jesus is confronting. That's the context here. Jesus is confronting what has happened with the law about divorce and remarriage instead of what it meant, what became the traditions of men and what were taught. And so 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 5 is a great example of the danger of proof texting. And because of that, and the reason I bring it up this morning is because there are many pastors who have taught through 1 Corinthians 7 and have done so in such a way that they've misused the text along with what Jesus is saying in the Gospels about divorce. And what it has done, it is keep men and women in unbiblical marriages and even in abusive relationships. Because if you have a woman that's being abused by her husband and she goes to her pastor and says, I'm being abused by my husband, and the pastor says, well, as long as he's not committing adultery, that's, that's proof texting. That's, that's not in line with what the biblical text says. It's not in line with what God has said from Genesis to Revelation about marriage. In fact, it would go in line more with Exodus 21, 10 through 11, which shows that if a man has designated a woman for himself, and then he neglects her of her marital rights, which includes protection, provision, then she is free. Why? Because God cares about what is actually taking place in the marriage. And Jesus is not going to contradict what he said in Exodus 21. What he's, what he's confronting is the traditions of men of the day. So let me just say this before we go forward that the point of the church is to protect spouses from abusive relationships and to work on reconciliation whenever possible. So if, when you hear me preach this morning about biblical commands for divorce and remarriage, I want you to know if you are in a marriage that is falling apart or if you are in a marriage where you are being abused or mistreated or neglected, then you are free to come and speak to us, myself, Pastor Keith, John, Ralph. If you're a lady, it would probably be better if you go first to Mary or Debbie and they can walk with you. And we, we will not just send you back into an abusive relationship and we will not use the word of God to do that to you. And so I just want to make that clear before we go forward with the rest of what Paul is going to say because he's going to talk much more about Marriage, and then he's going to even talk more about the roles of men and women going forward in 1 Corinthians as well. And those texts have been used to abuse. And it's not appropriate. What Paul is doing, though, is he is building on the Word of God from the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus, which is why he says, it's not I who says this, but the Lord. See, there are biblical grounds for a divorce, but that does not make every divorce biblically permissible. In fact, in most cases, it's the opposite. 
when divorce takes place and it is not biblical, the husband and wife are still bound together in the eyes of God. They are not free to remarry, regardless of what the state may say. So if you unbiblically separate, Paul says, you are either to remain unmarried so as not to commit adultery, or to reconcile with your spouse. And this would hold true until one partner did commit adultery or moved on with another partner. But basically what Paul's saying is that if you and your spouse, if you trust Christ, and you are separated or divorced for unbiblical reasons, you are not free to just go and remarry. Instead, your focus needs to be on reconciling with your spouse. I can smile at that because it's my son. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's. But Paul is using this. He's using this to really set up a discussion about a more pressing concern within the church. What happens if there is a Christian married to a non-believer? Now imagine this for a second, okay? We just finished 1 Corinthians 6 a few weeks ago, maybe like a month ago now. But, and if you remember, Paul is very specific in 1 Corinthians 6 about not joining Christ to a non-believer through sexual intercourse. He says, do not join yourself to a prostitute. Do not fornicate with a non-believer. Why? Because then you are joining Christ to that non-believer. And will Christ have anything to do with darkness? Will Christ be defiled in that way? And the answer is no. So you can imagine why Paul would then very quickly need to address, okay, but what happens if you have, let's say, two Gentiles who don't know the Lord and they get married and then... A few years later, Paul comes to town, he preaches the gospel, and one spouse gets married and the other spouse does not. What did I say? Get married? Get married. I, I caught it too. Get saved, and the other spouse does not. We'll edit that out. We... <laughs> what do we do in that situation? Paul has to address this. Because you can imagine that a good Christian would be sitting there saying, well, I mean... My spouse is a non-believer. I'm joined to Christ. And Paul just said, do not join yourself to a non-believer. So am, am I to remain celibate for my spouse? Should I, should I leave my spouse? Do I, do I have permission to get divorced then and marry a Christian instead? What, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think it's a question that a lot of people would have today. Imagine you're married before you're saved. You get married, you're not saved, and then God does a work in your life. I know for some of you, it may have been even bringing you to prison or bringing you to wayside or breaking you in ways that you never imagined in your life, and all of a sudden, you get saved, and then you try to continue this life walking as a Christian, trying to get your life back on track, and your spouse is not on board. They're willing to stay with you and be married. They want to be but they're not, they don't believe like you believe. They're not Christians. Imagine the predicament that would put you in. So 
So he says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So when Paul says to the rest, I say not the Lord, he's not saying that this isn't the Lord speaking through him. This is his apostolic authority. He is speaking the words of God as he writes this. What he's saying is he's not appealing to an Old Testament passage. He's not appealing to what Jesus taught in the Gospels because that's not there. Instead, he's speaking from his apostolic authority, being an apostle of God. And so he says, if any Christian has a spouse who is an unbeliever and he or she consents to live with him or her, they are still bound in the eyes of the Lord and they are to remain married. And Paul is saying that they are not defiled by their unbelieving spouse and said it's actually the opposite. In such a case, the believing spouse is not defiled by the unbeliever. Instead, it's the believing spouse, or I should say the unbelieving spouse, who is sanctified by being married to the believer. Well, how? Well, first, it is because the institution of marriage is established by God before the fall. It is good in the eyes of God. A faithful marriage among unbelievers or even among a believer and a non-believer, when it is faithful, is still pleasing. It's not, it doesn't save you. It's not a work that you can stand before God and say, well, I mean, I remain married, Lord. It, doesn't, it won't gain you entrance into heaven. But the Lord looks on the sanctity of marriage and he says, it is good. The believer instead is defiled when he fornicates. That is, when he has sex outside of the marriage covenant. Because in that case, he is rebelling against God's design for sex and marriage. But the institution of one man and one woman, and that is the only option, is good in the eyes of God. Secondly, the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse through their marriage covenant. And as we will see, as Paul is going to say in verse um, 16, this does not mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved because of the faith of the believing husband or wife. There are faithful Christians, because I will say that this is one of those texts where you will find, depending on their theological tradition, different understandings of what it means. But there are those who think that it means that because of the faithful spouse, that therefore the um, unbelieving spouse and the children have entered into this covenant as well and are members of the new covenant because of this spouse. But I do not believe that is what Paul is saying here. I think in order to answer this, it is better to look at what Paul is also saying about the children. See, because the other fear wouldn't just be that you're defiled 
by being married to an unbeliever, but that your children would also be defiled. Because if you are a believer and you're married to a non-believer and you have children together, wouldn't that make them defiled? One is still in prison to his sin and darkness and lust for the world and you are in the kingdom of God now. But where does that leave the children? But Paul says they're not defiled in that way. They're holy. The spouse is sanctified and the children are holy. So what then does this actually mean? Well, as I said, I I do not believe and will not go as far as to say that it means that the spouse and the children are also members of the new covenant because the new covenant is reserved for those who are joined to Christ themselves. It's an unbreakable covenant. You are united to Christ and there's only one way and it can't come through the proxy of somebody else. That's what John chapter 1 even tells us. Right? We, we enter into this, we have this right to be called children of God, not by blood, not by the will of men. And he's not talking about Christ's blood. He's talking about not by blood relation. So that can't be what Paul's saying here. However, my other concern is that there are those on the other end of the spectrum who think that this passage is saying nothing more than there's just... Uh, a basic influence that takes place. And while there is an influence, and that's an important part of it, that can't just be simply it. Uh, One of the reasons is that that wouldn't be how the Greek verb is used for sanctified, which is in the perfect tense, and that's just not how the perfect tense is understood. It's a state that the unbelieving spouse is in. It's a state that the children are in. How many of you are still with me and excited about this? I had to put a lot of work into this, all right? This is one of those passages. It just didn't come easy. So stay with me a little bit. I got some, I, don't worry, I got some good application for us, but I want us to understand some of the uh, deep theological truths about this, especially for the sake of some of us who, who may be married to non-believers. I mean, what does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for our children? So what does this mean? Well, the best way to see it is in light of what Paul has already said, again, in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul has already spoken about this idea of sexual union within the marriage covenant. Well, think about it this way then. Paul is saying that the, believe, that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by his or her union to the believing spouse. Well, it can't just be uh, by means of proxy because then it, if that were the case, then the prostitute would be sanctified by means of having fornication and intercourse with the believer. And that's certainly not what Paul's saying. So Paul says actually the opposite in that case that there's defilement taking place. But on the other end, this sort of covenant, because it's good, because it's marriage, because of the union that takes place, where God says all the way back in Genesis that the two become one flesh and that this is good. Instead, what is taking place here is a very unique 
situation, a unique situation because you have one half of the marriage who is joined in relationship and union to Christ. But then you have this unbelieving spouse who is joined with covenant, marriage covenant, to the one who is joined to Christ. Well, that does leave us in kind of a tricky situation. And where does the magic come in there? Well, there's no magic. What it means is that even though that this marriage partner is not in the new covenant, they and the children of that relationship have been given a blessing from the Lord. They have a special privilege of being able to be under the, or within, I should say, a household that is dedicated to the Lord. So I want us to think of it this way, especially with the children. Was everybody circumcised under the old covenant a faithful follower of Yahweh? Right? Were they a faithful follower of the Lord? No. No, they weren't. But would it have been better to be part of Israel or Egypt? Think about the Exodus. Where would you rather be? Would you rather be with Israel or Egypt? Israel, yeah. Even if you're a non-believer, that's better for you, right? Why? Because you're still experiencing... Your, yes, exactly. Thank you, Ed. You're still experiencing a level of common grace that Egypt did not experience. Because they were the recipients of certain blessings from God under the covenant of Abraham. What did they get to experience? Even in their non-believing state, more than other nations, they got to experience the love of the Lord, the lordship of God, and his community. Well, that's what's taking place here with the spouse and with the children. And what Paul's really getting at here is you wouldn't expel children of a mixed marriage from the church. So neither then should they encourage the divorce and breakup of those marriages. The reason why your spouse is sanctified, the reason why the children of these marriages are holy is because they do get to experience a special blessing from the Lord they do get to experience a special kind of common grace that other people do not get to experience. Now, unfortunately for them, if they're not saved, it doesn't, it doesn't mean they'll get to heaven from it. It doesn't mean they're united with Christ. But it does mean, in this sense, like I said, it is partially because of the influence. It does mean they get to live under the influence of the community of faith and the word of God, and they are, bu- they are not building up condemnation against themselves in the same way. They have the opportunity to live in a way that is not the same kind of just total rebellion that those who do not live under the word of God have. So then Paul says, for the un, um, he says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband 
Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? So in this case, what Paul says here is that God has called us to peace. See, with Paul's concern here being about divorce, if the unbeliever leaves the marriage, then the believer is free from that bond. This would remove the unbelieving spouse from the benefits that the believer has being joined to Christ, experiencing the lordship and love of Christ within the home. And it would also affect the children as well. Especially to wives back in, the, um, in this time period, the children would be in the custody of the husband. So if you have a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, you want your children to be under the influence of you, the believer, not just the influence of your unbelieving spouse. So you consent to live with them because they want to be with you, right? But then Paul says, but if they leave, you are not bound to them anymore. Let them leave. This is because we are people of peace, not strife. So regardless of whether or not this uh, unbeliever wants to consent to remain in marriage with you or to leave, you are not to be initiating strife. This is because we are a people of peace. We have been made peacemakers. This is also why Paul would say that as you remain faithful to your unbelieving spouse, you may be what God uses to save him or her. So, one of the things I wanted to do to kind of uh, bring this to a close, such a passage like this, is as practical as Paul is being, one of the things that we must remember is that marriage should always be seen in light of what it is signifying. The marriage covenant is created and a picture of the covenant between Christ and his church. It is between God and his people. And one of the things we tend to forget when we read passages like this, and one of the things that we need to be reminded of in our own covenant relationship with Christ is that when we look at that covenant, we are the ones who commit adultery. Christ is the perfect husband. And so as we, you know, and, and I, I, as I was wrestling with this text, one of the things that came to mind too is, you know, even within the church, I mean, the divorce rate is just so high and unbiblical. It's almost like spouses forget that they married sinners. And I've also experienced speaking with married couples who are almost just waiting for their spouse to screw up in such a way so that they can just be done. And as I was reading this passage and talking about you know, divorce and remarriage and married to an unbeliever, I kept thinking about the fact that Christ is the perfect husband doesn't do that to us, even though we're the ones who consistently commit adultery. 
Praise God that he has promised never to leave you or forsake you. So even though we've entered into this marriage covenant with Christ defiled, it is Christ who has washed us clean. And even though we continue to break our marriage vows, Christ does not break his. Instead, Christ is a redeemer. Christ is a reconciler, not a runner. And so let me say that if you see that you are sinning against God and committing adultery against Christ, then ask him to forgive you, and he will. Or maybe you find that you have more in common with the unbelieving spouse. Maybe you reap some of the blessings of being a churchgoer or calling yourself a Christian, but you know that you don't actually believe. Your life is all about you or all about the world. Then the command from Scripture is to believe the gospel today. Submit your life to Jesus Christ as your true Lord and your only salvation from sin and death. So practically, this is how it looks. One, stay with your spouse. The marriage covenant is sacred and God wants it to remain so. Don't be looking for a way out. Like I said at the beginning, if you are in a dangerous relationship, you have a spouse that is not providing for you like he's supposed to, then you come and talk to us and we will walk with you through that. And we will not put you back into a dangerous situation. But at the same time, if you have a spouse and you're not in a dangerous relationship and they're just failing and trying and failing then I would hope that you would have the same grace toward them that Christ continues to have toward you. Because you are called to be a reconciler as well, not a runner. Some of you may not have been married by the church, but maybe your relationship is more like a common law. Maybe you had a girlfriend or a boyfriend And before you were believers, you were together for a long period of time and you have children together. Then let me encourage you, okay? It's okay. Let me encourage you that in the eyes of God, you have a union there. And you don't have the right to abandon a spouse or to abandon those children in that relationship. And so again, if that's the situation you're in, then please come and talk to us, and we can disciple you through that. But the last thing for those of us who may read this and say, well, I'm not married, I'm not divorced, I'm not looking to be either, how does this apply to me? Just like Christ was called to be a reconciler, or is a reconciler, I meant, you are called to be as well. This is like this one last point of application I just want to finish with here, which is, you know, as I was praying about this passage as well, and, you know, the Lord had me up one night, and I was praying, and he just kept bringing this to mind that, you know, as Christians, we are called to be 
reconcilers. We are not called to be runners, but unfortunately, the church looks a lot more like runners. And of course, we do this in our marriages. Right? A lot of Christians want out of their marriages when they get tough. That's why the divorce rate is so high. We start to believe lies of the world, like you can fall out of love. Maybe some of you ran from your own marriages when they got tough. Or some of you sitting here today wish you could run from your marriage because it wasn't what you hoped it would be. But Christians also do this in other relationships as well. We run from family when things get tough. And the world has put a label on that as well. It's, you know, they're, they're toxic. Right? So, you're, so you can justify your running from your family. You can run from churches when they call out your sin and immaturity and just put the label legalistic on it. That word, I think, is thrown around so much today for churches that are just trying to be faithful. They're legalistic. And it kind of reminds me of the Princess Bride when the guy keeps saying inconceivable. And then the other guy says, you know, you keep using that word, and I don't think it means what you think it means. And that's kind of how legalistic is used today. I think a lot of people use the word, they have no idea what it actually means. And so they're confronted on their sin. They're confronted on their immaturity in Christ. And they run. And they find another church instead that won't do that. But Christians also do it with the culture and the fallen world. See, in all these areas, we are not called to run and hide. We are called to be reconcilers. So to bring this full circle, if you are married, and this has direct application to you, as Paul says, if you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, you stay together. And if you are already separated, then you either need to remain unmarried or you need to reconcile with your spouse. But if you're not married and you're just wondering how this passage applies to you, then it's that you are called to be a reconciler as well with the relationships that you have and not a runner. And so maybe you need to examine some of the areas in your life where you have been a runner and instead where you are called to make peace. Maybe it's your marriage your family, your own children, your parents. Maybe it's somebody in this church. Maybe it's somebody from your past. But be a reconciler. Don't live your life as a runner. All right? Now as we come to the Lord's table this morning for communion, I want to pray for us. This is a special time where we get to come together and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we do this together, we are also proclaiming the hope of the gospel that our Lord will return. And so I just want to say, if you are not a believer this morning, then I would ask that you would refrain. This is for believers only. Okay? So you, you can't just be married to a believer. You can't just be the child of a believer. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. <laughs> So, um, if you're not, I'm going to pray right now, and this would be the time to do so. And then after I pray, I'm going to have um, 
I'm going to have Jimmy and Jay come up and release us for communion. Heavenly Father, I pray now, Lord, that for a text like this, which can be maybe burdensome for some of us, depending on the relationships we're in, Lord, that we would seek comfort and relief from you. I pray, Lord, for anybody in here who is struggling with their marriage, that they would come and seek help from the church, that we would be faithful in walking with them through any and every situation that they may be having. And I also pray right now, Lord, that if there is anybody in here who is not saved, Lord, and especially if somebody has been relying on the salvation of someone else, thinking that they're Christians, Lord, that this would be the moment that they would turn their hearts over to you, that they would see you for the Lord and Savior that you, that you are, that they would recognize that their sinfulness needs to be washed clean by the blood of Christ. And that if they do that this morning, that they can rejoice at the table together as we take communion. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.